So we are definitely living in momentous times, huh? Historical times. You know the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times, and I think that this qualifies. We are living in interesting times. And uh, as historic as this may be, as we watch the news and everything, uh, these kinds of times, are, I think, are much better to read about later than it probably is to live through right now. And, um, you know, as we look at what's going on in our world, obviously it's, it's disturbing, you know, it's fearful, sometimes it's infuriating, but it is the world that we live in. And if you think about it, Jesus was born into the same kind of turbulence, maybe obviously more so, but if you think about it, Jesus was born only 20 years into the Roman occupation of Judea and the civil war that preceded that. The first Roman emperor was, was in power when Jesus was born, which means the Roman Republic fell just 20 years before Jesus was born. And the occupation of Judea the sacking of Jerusalem 60 years before was starting a, a fomenting, an unrest that just kept growing and growing and growing through the first century until that first Jewish-Roman war broke out in 66. And so all of this is happening. Jesus is born into these turbulent times, these times where everything is changing, where all the major institutions that everyone thought was so solid was the fabric of their lives is suddenly not anymore. Huge changes and happening so fast that the people don't even really have a chance to get the, the ground under their feet again. Last week we were talking about Peshitta eyes. <laughs> we were talking about that we need new eyes to see this new year with everything that we've gone through in this last year and who could have predicted the amount of change that we've gone through, the amount of turmoil that we've gone through in one year. If we think that somehow the clock clicking over to 2021 is going to change things, we've got another thing coming because we need to change our eyes in order to see the change that is happening and in order to see God even if the change is not happening in our moments. And we talked about that word Peshitta, which is usually translated clear. And you can put the, the scripture up if you want to, Brandon, that Matthew 6, starting at verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is clear, if your eye is Peshitta, which means simple, true, straight, all of those things together. And if your eye is Peshitta, eye meaning a view, an opinion, a mindset. If your mindset is simple and straight and true, then your whole body is full of light. And we talked about light, nura, meaning not only just light, but intelligence and clarity, orderliness. But if your eye is bad, if it's Bisha, unripe, immature, not yet ready for prime time, not yet ready to perform to desired specs, then your whole body will be full of darkness. And the darkness is the hoshek. The darkness is the disorder, the chaos. And then that last line that shows us how Jesus is talking in metaphor, if the light in you is darkness, in other words, if the order in you is disordered or chaotic, how deep is that darkness? How deep is that disorder? We're talking about changing the way that we see in order to be able to understand what is going on and see it in the proper perspective, see it with the proper 
connection to God's presence that will allow us to move through regardless of what's happening. If we can continue to see God in the small things, in the daily moments of our lives, then everything that's going on around us takes its proper perspective. And yes, it's difficult. And yes, we're going to have to react to it. And yes, it's going to affect us. And yes, it's going to hurt at times. But there will be a floor underneath us. There will be an end to the depths to which we sink. And just like when you go down into a pool, when you get to the bottom, you can push back off and it's the fastest way to the surface. This is what we're talking about. This is what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus' kingdom that he talks about constantly is both now and not yet. It's a balance of the two. It's a balance of acceptance and change. To accept this moment as it is, even as we work for the change that we seek. To accept this moment as it is, even as we recognize that circumstances are not what they should be, not what we want them to be. But that even that awareness of the things that still need to be changed doesn't affect the enoughness the perfection of this moment as we experience it, if we are immersed in, if we allow ourselves to be. This is the the task before us if we're going to follow Jesus' way. This is the balance that he's talking about that is the state of consciousness of kingdom, that is the quality of life, that is kingdom. He's telling us you can have this right now if you can have those eyes that can see what is really going on and not just what we perceive. Scotty was asking the other day, you know, what does that look like? You know, what does it look like to have this ability to see God in the small things? And the first thing that popped into my mind was Marion going to work. She's working in the garden department over at, uh, at Home Depot. And I went over there to, to visit her. And I walk into the garden, and it's just a wash in sunlight. The colors are so brilliant of all these plants and flowers. It just kind of invades your senses. You know, there's birds flying around. There's critters. There's all sorts of things. And, yeah, her job is a mixed bag like any job. Can I say that online, honey? Is that okay? (laughs) Like any job, right? You got customers you like and ones that aren't so nice. You got bosses and coworkers and everything and, and the hours and the physicality of it. But if she can just be in those moments watering those plants, immersed in the sights and the sounds and the scents and understand that the light pouring down is like God's love and spirit pouring down. In that moment, it's just enough, regardless of everything that needs to happen. I was just driving up here one day and I'm just looking out the windshield and it's just amazing to me the sights and the sounds of what's going on. The hills off to the east the way that the light was angling down. And it's like just this drive alone is as good as it gets, if I let it be. With all the problems that I face, with all the problems that I know that so many people are facing, this moment, just driving with my hands on the wheel, that's it, if I just let it be. Now, we say things like this. I say things like this. And you may be thinking that's laughably insignificant against what we're really facing, what you're facing in your lives, what the world is facing nationally, globally. There's so many monumental issues. How can simply being aware in these small moments make any dent in that, make any difference to the way that you may feel? Can this really be Jesus' way of moving through into kingdom and moving through life? We're so caught up in current events right now. I know everyone is. 
And I'm starting to hear the word apocalyptic a lot. That these got to be the end days. That this can't sustain much longer. Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic moments. Four years ago, the Democrats thought it was an apocalypse. You know, this year, the Republicans think it's an apocalypse. And everybody's looking at things from their own direction. And this has got to be the end. And apocalypse, what does that even mean? Now, what it has come to mean because of the book of Revelation and the imagery there and the way that it's been interpreted as the end days of all time and the end of the world, apocalypse has come to mean, in our common jargon, a catastrophic destruction, a life-ending catastrophic destruction. That's what we mean when we say the word apocalypse, or post-apocalyptic is after that catastrophic destruction, right? But what does the word really mean? If you take the book of Revelation, the first word of the book of Revelation in Greek is apocalypsis, which means revelation. The book takes the name from the first word. That was a common practice back in ancient times. Apocalypse really means unveiling. It means a revelation. The destruction is, is just coincidental. What really it is about and all these books are about, are that God's presence is always here and always now. It's hidden from sight by our own inability to see, by our own human consciousness. It's hidden from sight by the the traumatic events, the painful events that are happening to us. But it's always here, just like the stars. The stars that you looked up at last night, they're still there exactly where you left them. It's just that the sun rose and scattered the high-frequency light and gave us a blue sky and obliterated them, but they're right there, as is God. But at sunset, there will be an apocalypse. There will be an unveiling. There will be a revelation that the stars are still there, exactly where they were before. These apocalyptic books are telling us that regardless of what you see around you, regardless of the smoking crater that you may be standing in, God's presence is just as real, just as always, as it ever was, like the stars. And there will be an unveiling. That even if God has to step into human history directly, the promises that God made to us will not be void. The apocalyptic books are meant to keep our hopes up, to encourage us to continue on as we always have, that nothing has changed because the circumstances have changed. That's the point of apocalyptic literature, not the catastrophic destruction, but that God is still there, just covered over. You know, it's ironic that we read these books with fear, that we read these books and then we go dig bunkers and we fill them with uh, survival food. It's ironic because the intent of the book is exactly the opposite. It's about the unveiling. It's not about the destruction. The destruction is what we see around us, the difficulties that we see around us. And the imagery of the apocalyptic books need to match the severity of what the people are already feeling, or it's just going to feel trivial. Do you see what I mean? If you're going through something really traumatic, then the encouragement has to start at that point. Meet you where you are. Not try to start up here someplace in, in a kind of Pollyanna existence. But the point is the same. The point is about the hope. And we've turned it into a fear. 
And Jesus' kingdom is the same. Jesus keeps telling us over and over, the kingdom is already here. It's always here. It may be hidden from sight in the same way that God's presence is hidden from sight, but it's already here, hidden by our own eyes and mindsets, inability to process the now and the not yet, the withinness of kingdom and the growing outwardness of kingdom. So are we waiting for this unveiling? Are we waiting for this apocalypse to happen? Yes and no, I suppose, because it's now and it's not yet. But if we're only waiting for the apocalypse to happen, if we only see it as out there in the future someplace and not something that's accessible right now, this unveiling, then we're missing everything that Jesus is talking about. God is everywhere and every when, hidden only by our inability to see. It's up to us to start changing the way that we look, the mindset with which we look, so that we can start to see the unveiling that can be taking place every single moment of our lives. But, on the other hand, life can also help us <laughs> to have this unveiling. There are events that happen in our life that will help us. I've had three really amazing conversations in just the last week. One of them was, was one of them is with a woman who is facing cancer, advanced stages of cancer, and is looking at the moment of her death within weeks, maybe days. Another one was with a man whose daughter has a very severe illness, and statistically, it's a better than even chance that she's not going to survive. And then I talked with another young man who is so. What's the word I want to use? He is just so over-organized religion. He has such an aversion to over-organized religion that he can't imagine that any religion could describe a God that he would want to have anything to do with. And so he is proclaiming himself as an atheist and having that discussion. The fear of death, the fear of the unknown, to have your beliefs so shaken because of circumstances, that the things that you thought you knew about God you don't think you know anymore, to be facing what you see as the impossibility that religion can in any way describe God, can in any way describe a connection, a relationship, a way forward that makes any sense to you. For people in such circumstances as these, faith is no longer academic. Faith can't be intellectual anymore. You don't have the luxury to treat faith at arm's length as something that you can calculate and describe and sit on the shelf and expect it to be there for you because these circumstances are so present, are so imminent, are so urgent that they change the nature of the way that you need to interact. Life circumstances for people like these and people like us make our faith personal, immediate, and urgent. They force us into the position of having to look for the next step. What do we do? What is the next footfall? Where do we place our next step? Life has stripped away the distractions that maybe we were able to indulge in before. And it has also unveiled the superficial nature 
possibly, the, of untested beliefs, beliefs that we thought we had in our God, but were never tested to the extent that we could see that they didn't have the ability to take us through. Life in these instances reveals, unveils the need for something deeper in our lives. Just by the fact that life has become more intense, it has unveiled this for us. Haven't you experienced this in your own life? You know, everything can be fine for a while. You get converted into a new faith and you have your honeymoon period and everything seems fine for a while. Then the apocalypse happens, right? The trauma happens. The other shoe drops. Something that you didn't see coming. And it takes the wind out of your sails. It exposes that there's something missing here. I've also had conversations with the two parents of a young man, 32-year-old, who committed suicide. I've been talking to people who have experienced COVID deaths and just the separation from their family, breaking down in sobs on the telephone because of what is going on just in this last year. I've talked to people who have lost their jobs, lost family businesses that they had spent years, sometimes decades, building up. And of course, we talk about the political failings all around us and how that is just incomprehensible to us. All of these things pushing us into more intense corners, pushing us to the limits of what we say we believe that has any ability to comfort us, to take us through. Just here, I mean, Frank's been going through the sickness of his mother due to COVID. And thank God she's better today, right? She keeps getting better day by day. So this is great. But it wasn't looking so good two days ago. You know, what were you thinking? What were you going through? What was happening inside? And we talked a little bit, but I know there's a lot more that you didn't talk about. What about Nina and Angelo? Nina's still in the hospital right now, looking at another couple of weeks. What has gone through? What has this pushed her? She called this accident a life changer for her. It's pushing her to that edge or she needs to maybe reevaluate the things that she said she believed and the way that she processed things. Another family, the Anzanos, they have their whole family on her side got COVID. And two, her father and her sister are really sick. Last I heard, they were still in the hospital. That's changing and pushing them to the edge. Michelle, our friend in Pennsylvania, at the end of her journey with cancer, and a friend of our virtual friend of ours, Danielle, up in Northern California, same thing, trying to breathe through the waiting for test results for cancer herself. How hard is that? What goes through your head? How does your faith inform the way that you're going to take your next step when you're pushed in that kind of direction? See, we think the apocalypse is about the trauma and the loss, but it's not. It's about the unveiling of the need for a deeper dive. It's showing us that we need to take this even further to see how far the rabbit hole goes. It's the realization that our current belief and our current faith can't take us through this intact. It doesn't have the power. It doesn't have the wattage to do that, the horsepower. And it's pushing us to start to develop a personal theology that can take us through this one and the next one and the one under, after that. You know, I've said something for years, and I want to say it again and see if it really can stick with us at a time like this. No theology is effective 
until it becomes personal. No theology is effective. No theology that was handed to you, no theology that was just given to you as hearsay that you accepted from a pastor, a church, parents, anybody else, is effective until it becomes personal, until you take it into your own life and you test it in the streets of your life and you see whether it can take you through the, the difficulties that you're going to be facing. A personal theology that can unveil God's presence even now, in the midst of trauma, is one that has the power to take you through life and everything that life has to throw at you. A personal theology that you develop that allows us to accept life on life's terms, what's happening right now in this moment, but at the same time, retain hope in a loving God who has your back. That everything is still well with you, with your soul, even when things are so difficult. If you think about it, life is kind of like a, a moving wave front, right? And you're surfers. We're all surfers on that wave front, being moved out along this trajectory of life. Farther on, more ex extreme as we go, as we ride, as we age. I mean, if nothing else, old age is going to put you more and more out on the edge, having to contemplate and deal with things that you never dealt with before. As your body starts to change, as your energy starts to drop, as things start to break that you thought you were invincible, it wasn't going to happen to you, right? And all of a sudden, there it is. Surfing out on this wavefront of life, taking us farther on and more extreme, more and more will be unveiled as we go that challenges what we thought we knew what we thought about God, what we believed about God. This favorite illustration that you probably heard from me before, but I'll say it again, has to do with the, the way that the, the whole discipline of physics has been unveiled as we've moved through the last 150 years. In the mid-19th century, you had Isaac Newton, and he developed the laws of mechanics. And that described the motion of, of bodies and things just perfectly well within certain parameters. But as we started to be able to measure and ascertain speeds that were approaching the speed of light, suddenly Newton's laws didn't describe what was happening anymore, couldn't predict where things were going to be. So enter Einstein with the theories of relativity. That explained those. But as we got into subatomic particles, Einstein's theories didn't describe anymore what was happening down there. Enter quantum mechanics. And that did perfectly well for a while, but then you move into really complex systems like weather and, pop, uh, and politics and population dispersions, and suddenly that couldn't be described. Enter chaos theory. As we moved in our, in our technology to take us into more and more extreme areas, theories had to change and be developed to be able to describe what the heck was going on. Life is the same way. Our faith must keep expanding with our life experience, it needs to move, not to describe God, but to describe the way to God's unveiling, right? To this kingdom experience, to be able to know him. Our personal theology is exactly that. 
It moves in step with our life experience. It moves on us on this wave front as we move forward. Jesus represents this. Jesus shows us what it looks like as he was expanding the push into a new personal theology and challenging us to engage exactly what he's doing and to follow him along this way. He pushed just relentlessly against the cultural religion of Judaism at the time in the first century. Think of all of his tussles with the Pharisees. What was that all about? The Pharisees represented the cultural religion, represented the status quo, what they believed. Jesus was always pushing against that because he realized it was limiting. It only worked within certain parameters and never allowed the people to be able to move out and experience their God directly. It was always going to be contained with them holding the keys and the levers. And he pushed against that at every step. It eventually got him killed because they couldn't have him continuing to lay an axe at the root of their power. Think about how he tried to take what was a hugely complex religion by the time he comes on the scene and to simplify it down to just a few words and concepts that people could understand and could live and say, it's not about what you think. It's not about what you know. It's not even about what you obey. It's about your immersion in this moment that allows you to live and love the way your Father in heaven lives and loves. And he took everything that Judaism was about and he nailed it, whittled it, stripped it down to love God with your whole heart, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. You do that, it's done. I'm going to give you an even newer commandment than that. Just love each other the way I have loved you. And everyone will know that you're my followers by the way that you love, not by anything else, not by your heritage, not by your ethnicity, not by your lawfulness, by the way that you love. If you can love the way I have loved you, everything is where it needs to be. He simplified it. He pushed beyond the culture. He just blew everyone's minds with what he was doing. But his first followers eventually understood It took the crucifixion, it took the resurrection, it took everything, but eventually they began to understand and they wrote of their encounters with this unveiling that was taking place in their lives as they continued to follow Jesus' way, even though they didn't understand it and didn't know where it was going. The unveilings happen if we just keep showing up and that's what was happening to them. Take a look at Matthew 27. This is right at the crucifixion. And it's a really interesting story that I know you've heard. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. He is hanging on the cross at this time. It's right at the end. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. What's your first take on that? Apocalyptic imagery, right? This could go fit right nicely into the book of Revelation or Daniel or Ezekiel. Apocalyptic imagery. And it's centered on the veil, the veil of the temple. 
Now, I don't know what you know about the veil of the temple or the way the temple was set up. The best that we can reconstruct of the second temple, the one that was refurbished by Herod, you know, just a few years before Jesus started his public ministry. But the interior of the temple was divided into three sections. There was a court, an outer court, that all it had in it was a laver, uh, a bowl where, where you could wash. And then you went through a curtain into the holy place. And this was a, a larger room, and it only had three things in it. It had the menorah, the lampstand. It had the altar where the, the incense was burned. And it had a table with the showbread, the bread that was offered and kept fresh by the, the Levites. And then there was another curtain after that. And if you passed through that curtain, you were in the Holy of Holies. In ancient times, the only thing that was in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant that had the actual tablets that Moses wrote, the rod that budded for Aaron. This Holy of Holies was a place that no one could enter except the high priest and only once a year at Yom Kippur he went in. It was probably a perfect cube, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. By Jesus' day, the ark was already gone. It had been hidden away in the time of Josiah, but the holy place was understood as this is where God's presence rested. When the ark was still there, it hovered over the mercy seat, which was the, the place where the ark of the covenant rested. And it was still understood as the place of the presence of God, even though the ark was gone. The veil separated the outer holy place from the inner holy place, the holy of holies. And this curtain, this veil, was enormous. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us that it was probably, if you convert cubits to feet, about 60 feet wide. Can you imagine 60 feet wide? I mean, this room is probably, I don't know, 30 feet across. So twice this in length and 30 feet high, matching the ceiling of the holy of holies. And he describes it as being a hand's breadth, breadth thick. Now, that's usually around four inches. So if you look up how thick is the veil of the temple, it'll usually be around four inches. But there are others, you know, there's all sorts of things. Oh, it was two inches. It was one inch. It was four inches. Another one says it was three feet thick because it was, it was layers of material hung in overlapping patterns so that the high priest, when he went in, had to actually follow a maze to get through before he went in. That's kind of an interesting concept. Whatever it was, even if it was four inches thick, can you imagine? Now, to our eyes, this doesn't look like a curtain that we would hang. This is a tapestry. It was richly embroidered with all sorts of, of images. And it was embroidered of four different colored threads, scarlet, blue, purple, and white. The symbolism that is going on here is that the Holy of Holies is the place of God's presence. It represents heaven. The Jews always understood that we were living between heaven and earth. The Holy of Holies is heaven. And the curtain is the boundary between earth and heaven. And the curtain, because it has those four colors that represented the four elements of earth the way the ancients understood. Red was, was fire. Blue was sky and air. Green, um, what was it? Purple was sea and ocean. I don't know why purple, but there you go. And white was earth. And it was understood earth when the flax harvest was ripe and white, that idea. And because the tapestry, the curtain, the veil represented earth, it represented all physical matter. 
When the high priest went in on Yom Kippur, he would shed his outer garment, which contained those same colors, ritually and symbolically shedding his own matter, shedding his body as he went into the oneness of heaven. Do you see the symbolism there? There's so much that is going on here. The veil represented physical matter that covers God's presence from our sight. It had to be breached in order to be with God. So now how does this relate to Jesus? Take a look at Hebrews 10, verse 19, starting there. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence, listen, to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That first line is the singer. The first line is the crazy one. We have confidence to enter the holy place. They have confidence to enter the holy of holies the place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. When Jesus' body was torn, when he finally died on the cross, at that moment, the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. The ancients are telling us that these two events are one event. That the veil was separated. The veil that kept all the people from God's presence, which equaled now in Hebrews, Jesus' own body. Another veil which covered and hid God's presence within. Both of those have been taken away so that now every single one of us can enter freely into God's presence, freely into the Holy of Holies, if we are following Jesus' way of moving there into God's presence. The symbolism is so rich. Jesus' body is the veil that covers God's presence. Now everyone enters Jesus' way to the Father. When does this happen? At death? When we actually shed our physical matter and move through into the next dimension, whatever it happens to be, whatever that looks like? Are we still waiting for the unveiling? Yes and no. Now and not yet. Death, of course, is a major apocalypse for us, a major unveiling for us, for every human who has ever lived or ever will live. Our veil, our body is torn. It's pulled away at that point. We shed our outer outer garment, and now we can see beyond. But Jesus is absolutely emphatic about the here and the now at the same time, that the kingdom is within. It's already here. It's always been here. That the Father is always present. And all we need are those Peshitta eyes, those clear eyes, to see what is always hiding in plain sight but is always present to us. Jesus is saying that heaven, that the apocalypse starts here, starts now, and will extend into whatever the next life holds for us. And he's saying as explicitly, implicitly as he possible can, that if we can't see God now, we won't see God then. That's what this is all about. 
creating the kind of eyes, the mindset, the Anavim spirit that can see God now in every detail so that when we do cross over, that we can recognize and see God then. Jesus said, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it. To see God in an unveiled moment is to lose yourself in that moment, to be completely immersed or lost in a moment, to be grateful in that moment, to be on a beam in that moment, is parting the veil and entering the holy place. We don't need to wait for death for this. Each contemplative moment is a little death, is that loss of self. Each time we pray contemplatively, and what do we mean by that, in case you don't know? It's stepping away from all of those thoughts in your head, stepping away from everything in you that objectifies, that creates edges around things, that categorizes, that calculates, to step away from all that and just be. Every time we pray contemplatively, it's the same thing. It's like a little death. I wanted to read, by way of pulling this all together, Richard Rohr seems to be on the same tack this week in his meditations. And he wrote this. When we celebrate the beginning of a new year, a new year, a new year, <laughs> we celebrate the rebirth of time. We wait for God to do new things. We wait for who we are. We wait for the coming of grace, for the revelation of God. We wait for the truth. We wait for the vision of the whole. But we cannot just wait. We must pray. We say that prayer is not primarily words, yet prayer can be words. And if the words come out of that empty, contemplative place, then we can trust that we really mean them. Contemplative prayer is a form of unveiling because it reveals what is going on beneath the polished and busy surfaces of our minds, our hearts, and our bodies. When we finally get still enough, Contemplation can live within us in pure, open moments of right here, right now. This is enough. This is fullness. If it's not right here, right now, it doesn't exist. If we don't know God now, how would we know God later? The mystics say we won't. We will not recognize God later if we cannot recognize God now. It's a matter of seeing God now through the shadow and the disguise. You know, I've said all over and over, just following this thought, that salvation that we think of as God's decision about us, really, if you think about it, it's our decision about God. Whether we will be willing to accept, recognize God as God really is when we're face to face, we need to turn this around and realize the choice is ours. Contemplative prayer lives in a spacious place, free of personal needs or meanings or even interpretations. Life doesn't care what I like or I don't like, and it doesn't matter a bit. If we stay in the world of preference, we keep ourselves as a reference point. Not God as a reference point, not reality as a reference point. If we stick with our preferences, we are always a reference point. Does it really matter what color I like best or what my current favorite movie is? It changes from moment to moment. No wonder people have identity crises. No wonder people have a fragile self-image. They have nothing solid to build on beyond changing opinions and feelings. That's not a solid foundation to build on. The real question is, what does this moment have to say to me? 
Those who are totally converted come to every experience and moment and ask not whether they liked it, but what it has to teach them. What's the message or gift in this for me? How is God in this event? Where is God in this suffering? This is a prayer of unveiling, asking that the cruciform shape of reality be revealed to us within the very shape and circumstances of our own lives. That's it. Looking for God right here, right now, in every detail of life, with eyes that can see beneath and beyond and immerse in, prayer understood as life lived in an unveiled and apocalyptic series of moments. Not tragic, destructive moments, but moments lost in gratitude. Moments for seeing the goodness and the enoughness that is God's presence. Life lived as Paul exhorted us to live in continuous prayer, not continuous words or thoughts, but just a continuous awareness of that presence in everything that we experience, in apocalypse, in unveiling, just life as life presents, Peshitta eyes seeing the simple truth of things that allow us to lose ourselves in these moments. There's a saying from the Gospel of Thomas, and if you're not familiar with the Gospel of Thomas, it's because it's not in our Bible, but it's just a saying's gospel, just the words of Jesus. And yes, it's not canonical. You don't have to take it to the bank, but there's one line there that where Jesus says, split a piece of wood and you will find me. Lift up a stone and I am there. That's it. That's exactly it. Split a piece of wood lift up a stone, drive your car, sit at table with your family or your friends, go to work and deal with whatever you deal with. Jesus is saying, I am there in every one of those details if you have eyes to see. Can it really be that simple? Yes, it can. If we allow it to be if we allow these moments to be enough and allow it to form the ground underneath us that will allow us to walk through the most difficult moments of our lives. Let's pray. Father, in difficult times, you feel a million miles away sometimes. That's just our humanity talking. That's natural. You understand. Help us to understand as well that there is no place that we can go that you haven't preceded us, that there's no place we can go where you, like the stars, aren't just as present as you always were. But help us more and more to prepare our eyes, our mindset, our way of looking, so that we can value what seems insignificant so often. That we can see that the seemingly powerless things in our life are the things that really connect us to you and all the power that we'll ever need to get through whatever we're going through. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for every revelation that you've given us. And help us to push into our own personal theologies, our own personal unveilings that will convince us 
beyond a shadow of a doubt that all is well, that you are here, and that we will live abundantly if we just keep showing up to you. Thank you for your love and constancy, Father. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.